This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 675. This week, we welcome Eric Malmstrom of Safe, the Safe Traces CEO. And joining us again this week is Christian Weeks, Environ CEO. We're going to continue our discussion on how to achieve sustainable indoor air quality using the clean first approach. This week, we'll focus on parts three and four of the four-step clean first approach. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show and don't forget after the show to continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., TSI. Dot com, Sunbelt Rentals, sunbeltrentals.com, April Air, April, A-I-R-E.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, healthyindoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to report that Dawn Weeks nosed out Doug Conan of Aerotech Environmental by three seconds last week to identify adsorption as the word that fits this definition, the accumulation of gases, liquids, or solutes on the surface of a solid or liquid. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for today, for today September 16, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IEQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IQ Radio trivia question. What term is used to refer to the group of elements listed in group 18 of the periodic table? Back to you, Joe. All right. Eric Malmstrom is the CEO of Safe Traces, a Bay Area-based provider of the only indoor air quality verification that actively measures pathogen risk via their patented aerosol tracing technology. Previously, he held senior roles at the White House, the Farmers Business Network, and Cargill. He's a co-founder of Cross Boundary, a frontier marketing investment firm, investment advisor. He's a combat veteran and a graduate of the U.S. Army Ranger and Airborne Schools, and he received his undergraduate degrees from the University of Pennsylvania and a joint MBA MPP from the Harvard Business and Kennedy Schools. Christian Weeks is also back to join us this week. He's the CEO of Inverid Systems, a leading provider of sustainable indoor air quality solutions. 
He has over a decade of experience in energy efficiency and IAQ. He advocates that buildings take a system-level approach to achieving what he terms sustainable IAQ, and he spearheaded the collaboration that led to this report. Let's start with you, Eric. Welcome to IAQ Radio. Tell listeners a little bit about your background, if you would. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Great to be here. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I, I, I don't come out of the world of indoor air quality. So I've had a career that spanned the military, um, other areas of business, some government service. But over the past few years, um, I've spent a lot of time in the kind of startup technology world. And I'm someone who's very mission driven. And really, the things I care about are linked to safety security and sustainability and um, air quality is something that touches pretty much all of those because it's a huge huge uh, has a huge impact on public health it has a huge impact on uh, on sustainability and it also has a, a huge impact on people's security as it relates to how safe they are within different environments and so I'm in a company right now that has a powerful technology that can be deployed in a variety of different ways, but air quality is our, our primary focus. And we have some a really valuable application right now, given what's going on with, with COVID and the future concerns about pathogens and pandemics. Yeah, it seems like COVID kind of changed the company direction. Um, you, you mentioned before the show that the, you started out in the food safety area with this product, and now you're moving heavily into uh, air quality. Um, I guess I'm wondering, what, what do you see as the big difference between the two? Sure. So um, I think that, the, the well, it's, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting question because if you read some of the prominent experts and thinkers in air quality, um, they've made this reference to comparing air, air safety and air quality to food and water quality and safety. And his, have talked about air quality, particularly indoor air quality as a laggard, that basically with food and water, um, there's a whole regime of standards and regulations and an architecture around how we protect people from contaminants and pathogens that, that um, you know, is implemented within the food chain and the water supply, but air is something that pretty much uh, is at a much more immature stage. It's it's not had the same level of public focus and scrutiny, same level of research and development, and also uh, now, as we've seen with the pandemic, that's had a huge cost to public health, to the economy, and we're now playing catch up. And um, so I'd say the biggest thing is it's just kind of shocking to me coming from the food industry where you have the USDA and the FDA with very um, rigid kind of regulations that food processors need to abide by. And then I, I've come into real estate over the past couple of years, and it seems like the Wild West to me. You know, basically, you can go into a building and whether you're a building owner or operator or a member of the public, you basically have no transparency on whether the building has been through a rigorous safety check um, as it relates to pathogens. Some areas like mold and asbestos are uh, better covered, but for pathogens, there's really nothing. Um, and I, I'd say that's a bit shocking to me. 
I'm glad I asked. All right, let's bring Eric back into the, the show here. Eric, last week we went over the four steps of the clean first process. John, maybe you could pull them up. That's on page uh, two of the document, I believe. And uh, what I'd like to do is just quickly, if you would, review step one, defining IAQ goals. Yeah, Joe, thanks for having me back. It's great to be here with you again to uh, complete where we picked up or pick up where we left off last week. So yeah, we've developed this uh, framework uh, to achieve sustainable indoor air quality, better indoor air quality, more energy efficiently with improved resilience to outdoor air pollutants. That's the whole goal here. How we achieve that is using this clean first approach as you mentioned. Um, And where we suggest people start as we discussed last week is when we say we want better indoor air quality, let's start by defining what we mean by that. Because there are different ways to achieve different indoor air quality targets, um, but we need to agree on what we're trying to achieve in the first instance. So we're essentially recommending people define IAQ goals. Specifically, we recommend around PM 2.5, ozone, carbon monoxide, and formaldehyde that meet at least the minimums that ASHRAE is defined in standard 62.1, perhaps more stringent if you're trying to do enhanced indoor air quality. And then we also talk about the need for equivalent air changes to deal with pathogens. We'll talk a lot more about that with Eric on today's show. Um, And we also highlight that we don't suggest relying on CO2 as a main indicator of good indoor air quality um, because it's while it's a good uh, metric for ventilation effectiveness in spaces occupied by people, uh, it's not a, it's not many contaminants we should be thinking about do not originate from people in these indoor environments. And so it doesn't represent those And when we're looking at approaches that layer different air cleaning approaches, not just ventilation, CO2 is less relevant. So that's a quick overview of the first step in the framework. All right. Let me get your name right here first, Christian. I think I called you by the wrong name on the the intro there. But um, step three, or I'm sorry, step two, clean the indoor air. So we talked about, you know, particle and pathogen filtration, the MERV-13 filters. We talked about gaseous contaminants, which I think... We're going to talk a little bit more about because that's that's your bailiwick right there and adding in-room HEPA filters or UVC. Let's jump right into step three, optimizing ventilation. First, I want to ask you, Christian, what is optimized ventilation? Yeah, so we, um, if I can actually, I'm going to start with why do we ventilate buildings in the first place? Because I think that's a good backdrop for then what do we mean by optimized ventilation? Um we ventilate buildings, uh, and we're talking about commercial buildings here, but I think it applies more broadly as well, but we ventilate buildings for primarily two reasons. One is to maintain building pressure. We've got air leaving buildings through toilet exhaust, through kitchen exhaust, through opening and closing doors and windows. And so we need to replace that. We need to make up that air to maintain appropriate building pressurization. So that's one reason we ventilate buildings. The other reason, um, and frankly, the reason that makes up most of the outside air ventilation that we bring into buildings has to do with indoor air quality. We're essentially using outdoor air to dilute indoor generated contaminants that come from, in part, people, but also from our cleaning supplies, our furnitures, the glues, the paints, these other things that are all around us indoors. And so we are ventilating buildings, um, by and large, to maintain good indoor air quality. The challenge with this approach is that in many climate zones, specifically where it's hot and humid in the summer, cold in the winter, conditioning lots of outside air to dilute indoor generated contaminants to achieve good indoor air quality, conditioning all that outside air is very energy intensive. And so when we mean optimize ventilation rates, what we really mean is 
look at ways to get the right amount of outside air that also accounts for our ability to clean the indoor air, which was our second step to achieve those indoor air quality targets we achieved in step one. Primarily, you know, the approach today is primarily just rely on outside air ventilation for better air quality. We're saying let's optimize how much outside air we really need by also accounting for the air cleaning systems we have in place that can help us achieve those IAQ targets we defined in step one. All right. So we're trying to optimize ventilation, and, and this is oftentimes going to be in combination with layered air cleaning technologies and optimized ventilation using the IAQ procedure from the ASHRAE standard 62.1, I believe that would be. Um, can you quickly just give our listeners a little background on that IAQ procedure? I don't think it's used as often, at least in the past, as maybe it is now. And what's your experience yeah. with that? Yeah, sure. So uh, when designers uh, or operators of buildings are designing their HVAC system or evaluating their ventilation rates, they have two procedures they can follow within standard 62.1 to calculate mechanical ventilation rates. They've got the ventilation rate procedure, and this is, Joe, what most people are using today. That's certainly more familiar to people, probably. And then they've got the indoor air quality procedure. The ventilation rate procedure, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a prescriptive method to determine the minimum outside air requirements based on space size, the area of, a, of, a, of an interior, and the occupancy. Uh, and it doesn't consider the benefits of source control and removal measures such as air cleaning and filtration. Essentially, the ventilation rate procedure is a relies only on ventilation to maintain good indoor air quality. The indoor air quality procedure, in contrast, which by the way has been in the standard since the early 1980s, but as you mm -hmm. pointed out, is less well uh, understood and, and, and less often adopted. The indoor air quality procedure is a performance-based method to determine that minimum outside air requirement based on specific IAQ targets. And it allows you to combine not just outside air ventilation, but also source control and removal measures such as air cleaning and filtration systems. So it's the IAQ procedure that allows you to design the specific IAQ targets, allows you to incorporate layered approaches to achieve those IAQ targets. And this is what often allows for a more efficient result because we're not no longer just relying on outside air ventilation to deliver good indoor air quality. We're using some ventilation, but also relying on air cleaning so we can safely recirculate some of the air that's already at temperature or very close to the temperature that we're looking for indoors. So it's a much more flexible procedure uh, and it's a procedure that allows you to account for the air cleaning or, or air disinfection technologies that may also be part of your, your, your design. I'm wondering, Christian, when we're going to talk a little bit about commissioning of buildings and, and how, you know, this can be done during the commissioning phase. But then after you've already got a building up and running, you know, now with schools and these other large buildings, hospitals, et cetera, that, you know, are more concerned about the pandemic. Do you see building owners and managers coming in kind of after the commissioning, you know, several years down the road and looking at using the uh, IAQ uh, the, the particular, you know, the IAQ uh, procedure, yeah, yeah, procedure um, to try and, you know, kind of change the balance of the outdoor air. Yeah, well, 
so we do see it as an opportunity uh, when people are doing upgrades to their mechanical systems, when they're maybe updating their control system, or if they're looking at energy conservation measures, ECMs, maybe as part of an ESCO project or some sort of energy efficiency project, there are opportunities to reevaluate uh, how much else they will bring in the buildings to perhaps if we've deployed, you know, higher uh, rated filters or uh, for particles or also for gases. It's really the gases that you need to control. So in many cases, what we'll do is we'll help people look, uh, deploy uh, sorbent filters to capture the gaseous contaminants that ASHRAE has defined that, that say need to be controlled if you're gonna use the IQ procedure. And then they can reevaluate. They can, they can reset that outside air ventilation, reposition those damper set points um, to achieve ener energy benefits because of the air cleaning that they've deployed perhaps since the building was originally commissioned. And Eric, could, let's follow up with you on, on how safe traces might be used during that commissioning process and, and how that may help with um, kind of sustainable IAQ. Sure. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to that question in two different ways. So for the IAQ experts kind of contextualizing us within the other existing tools. Well, first off, I'll explain what we do. So Safe Traces has an aerosol tracer technology that we've developed and it goes back to um, our, our roots in Lawrence Livermore National Labs, um, where we've looked at ways of basically safely simulating uh, pathogens using sur surrogates uh, is the term, you know, something that safely sim simulates a pathogen. And for, um, for, for viruses and uh, and things like COVID and influenza, we have an aerosol tracer that is consists of water and then a DNA tag um, that uh, at one level simulates kind of viral copies within human saliva. Um, and we kind of concentrate it uh, in the similar, similar way that you would find viral copies in saliva. And then we aerosolize them, we spray them in a real building and the DNA tag allows us to track uh, where the particles are moving within the building. And then also we can measure kind of exposure levels. And so uh, DNA is highly sensitive to detection. So you can basically have air samplers or pumps staged throughout a space. And then you can take time series data. You can take kind of uh, something more analogous to like testing and balancing type of readings within the building. And I'd say at one level, it's somewhat similar and analogous to tracer gas, um, except instead of using a gas, you're using an aerosol. And the benefit of an aerosol relative to a tracer gas is that gases uh, are great for um, being able to measure and verify ventilation, but gases go straight through filters. So you're not able to really capture the filtration impact on the particle removal with a gas. In aerosol, you can measure both in the same test. The other thing uh, that we, we do is in terms of the data output, rather than just giving a kind of hard to read spreadsheet or dense report, we visualize things very similar to computational fluid dynamic modeling for those who are familiar with that, basically showing heat maps and other ways of making it very digestible to people what is happening within the space. And so to get back to your, your question, um, you know, we, we come in basically uh, as a way, you know, to enhance the commissioning process 
of a building. And in many cases, it's not actual new build commissioning. It's more retro commissioning and ongoing commissioning. But we would uh, go into spaces within a building and take measurements on particle removal uh, rates in high density areas. We would do kind of airflow type assessments um, to track containment or spread within a space and, and balance or lack of balance. And all of that is basically filling a huge data gap that people have right now of like when they're undertaking all these changes, whether it's air cleaning or enhancing filtration or uh, adjusting the outdoor air rate, the question is, what is that doing? You know, uh, like, is it uh, leading to any measurable safety benefit? And we basically can help answer that question through our technology. And so we get layered in with all the other traditional uh, uh, commissioning type work that's done. Um, that's largely focused on kind of mechanical functionality and energy efficiency and bring this new, more safety focused kind of commissioning tool into the fray. Cliff, you have a follow-up? I, I do. I'm just interested in how you generate the, uh, you know, the aerosol. Could you explain to the listeners how you do that, you know, within the buildings? Sure. So we have a, uh, an electronic pneumatic sprayer. It looks like a, a box. And you basically press a button and it releases uh, the aerosols. Um, at, a, at a particle size distribution that's more on the kind of size range of uh, speaking and breathing. Um, you know, so it, for people who are familiar with aerosol science, there's a lot of discussion on, you know, particle sizes and what, what the, the size range is. And so our main uh, nebulizer is kind of generating smaller particles, but we also have a, a hand actuated spray bottle that produces larger ones um, that's closer to coughing and sneezing. Uh, but you basically, you know, have a, have a way of releasing these and it's putting out a volume, a liquid volume, similar to a respiratory emission. Um, and so you, you kind of release the tracers in the space and then you allow a circulation period or a, a period for the particles to kind of get into the air, circulate around and, and have enough measurement time to see what the impact of the dilution ventilation filtration is. And so... Um, that's basically the, the release process. And one other uh, important thing to call out is that we have uh, up to 24 different unique DNA tags that we can use in, uh, to, to test a space. So um, if you wanted to take like a conference room in an office or a school classroom through a variety of different scenarios where you're adjusting the, um, the kind of conditions of the space, whether you're switching the outdoor air fractions, the MERV rating on the filters, putting in a ceiling or floor mounted HEPA, and opening the door, whatever, we can basically run that room through a series of scenarios back to back. So you don't need to wait for the DNA to clear. You can just, you know, you're testing against a different tag, which is very valuable because people want to test different scenarios to see what's having an impact. Do you have to test every single room in the building in order to test the building or you just test one place and it goes everywhere? Um, so uh, DNA is highly sensitive to detection. So you can uh, test 
you know, you can use a, a relatively small amount of liquid volume to test large spaces. However, if you're talking about a multi-story kind of office building or large spaces, you know, tens of thousands of square feet, or in some cases, hundreds of thousands, you're, you're going to need to release in many different spaces. Um, so, you know, part of that is where are you getting valuable data? The other piece is just, you know, we, for larger spaces, we generally take a, an approach of testing representative areas and you don't need to test every room and every square foot in the building. You want to get a good kind of reading of different types of spaces and then you can extrapolate that to the broader building. Sure. I want to tie this into a couple of text questions or, or comments. Um, real optimization is about how clean is the breathing zone of occupants and not so much the quantity of outside air supply. Um, can you visualize airflow patterns? How do you ensure the breathing zone of the occupants are safe? And I'll throw that out to either one of you. Yeah, so I'm happy to take, oh, go ahead, Christian. Well, I was gonna speak about the visualization piece, um, but uh, I, would, I would concur with the comment that uh, this is all about how clean is the air in the breathing zone. And uh, what we're trying to uh, encourage with this clean first approach is that that air in the breathing zone can be cleaned with dilution ventilation or it can be cleaned with air cleaning. And in fact, what we suggest is usually going to make the most sense from a cost and efficiency standpoint is going to be some combination. But it's true that just air distribution is going to be distribution effectiveness is going to be a really important factor here and one that we briefly mention the paper, but don't go into extensively. Yeah, and I would just add that from, from our, our standpoint, I mean, the way that you set up a, a, a field test really can get after that breathing zone um, kind of question because, you know, how and where you release the tracers and then where you're sampling is basically representing kind of, you know, the, the release is representing a, represent, a, a respiratory emission and then a sampling is representing an exposure, someone breathing it. And so we factor that into kind of where we're releasing tracers and where we're sampling. I, I guess the, the question is, and you know, I, I see that this is a first draft, Christian. So maybe this is something you're going to want to tackle in a little more detail, a little more depth with, with future revisions. Yeah, this whole question of... Um, distribution effectiveness. I mean, getting the ventilation right is important. Getting the air cleaning right is important. Um, and, uh, but it does assume that you have effective, uh, you know, air distribution within the space, within the breathing zone. And so that's something that, as I said, we, did, we don't go into in great detail, but it's probably something that merits further discussion in a, in a future iteration. And Christian, I'd like to kind of just quickly go into the products that, that your company, uh, specializes in and that's basically air cleaning technology but we always oftentimes we talk about air cleaning we're thinking about particles and you're more focused on gases um can you tell listeners a little bit about your process yeah for sure we um like eric we've sought to fill a gap in the market we've seen around the ability to remove these gaseous contaminants from indoor air so we think of indoor air quality having sort of three three pillars You've got the particles, you've got the pathogens, and then you have the gases. And all buildings today are required to have some level of particle filtration. The commercial building code is usually it's MERV-8 and it's increasing. There's a push to MERV-13 and uh, MERV-11 and ultimately probably MERV-13. 
Um, and so for the most part, you know, we have we design our buildings to account for the particles using filtration. Um, but when it comes to the gases, we're primarily today relying on dilution ventilation. Um, and what we're trying to uh, do with Inverid, what we've done with Inverid is developed a filtration technology targeting the gases. And specifically, it's a sorbent media-based technology that allows us to capture the gaseous contaminants from the indoor air, just like the particle filters capture the particles and also the pathogens. So um, what we do is we have a, uh, our core technology is a sorbent media. Uh, it's, a, it's a resin that we granularize with silica. So it's a granular, comes in a granular form. We put the, the sorbent media inside filters. Um, and then we put these sorbent filters inside standalone air cleaning systems. Uh, or we can also integrate it inside a traditional HVAC system. For example, we're working with Daikin today. There was an image uh, you saw a moment ago um, that shows this, uh, where we are integrating. Yeah, there you have it. So there you have a package rooftop system from Daikin that has uh, inside of it this sorbent filtration technology so that we're not only using the traditional filters here to remove the particles, but we're also removing the gaseous contaminants. So that's essentially what Inverit has developed. And, and it's, 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 it's important because it allows you to then uh, do that ventilation optimization in terms of the airflow. Uh, it allows you to move away from just relying on outside air ventilation to control those gases. Uh, we can combine uh, the outside air ventilation with, with uh, sorbent media to both dilute and capture and figure out that energy efficiency optimum and, and cost optimum uh, as well. So yeah, there's a great video right there. For those interested in learning more about the core technology, um, this video here uh, on our website under products, sorbent ventilation technology is a three minute introduction to the chemistry a little bit and how it works to remove these gaseous contaminants from, from indoor air. I've just got a quick follow up on uh, Christian on, your, on your, your products. You say that it's integrated into a filter. What type of filtration is in there? Is it what level of filtration? So, well, it's a great question. Um, you know, we're often accustomed to talking about levels of filtration in terms of a MERV rating, uh, but that only applies to particles. Um, so we do have, our filters do have a MERV 11 rating in terms of particles, okay. PM2.5, but ASHRAE has a, and that MERV rating comes out of ASHRAE standard 52.2, I believe it is. ASHRAE has another standard called ASHRAE 145.2, which is a standard, a, a test method for measuring the effectiveness at removing gaseous contaminants from indoor air. So what we've actually done is done the MERV testing, but we've also done the 145.2 testing on the full range of gaseous contaminants that are now defined in ASHRAE 62.1, so that when engineers are looking to apply the IAQ procedure with our sorbent filtration technology, they can take the list of contaminants that need to be controlled right out of the ASHRAE standard. It's been updated recently to include that list of contaminants and the design limits for each contaminant. And they can essentially then apply standard emission rates. So we're, we've got a list of contaminants we have to control. We know how quickly those are generated from research that has been done in different building types. We can then apply our efficiency at how quickly we can remove those contaminants and therefore understand how much benefit we gain from these sorbent filters. And then we can mix that with some ventilation to figure out that optimum between how much air cleaning, how much ventilation do I need to control indoor air quality to the standards I want to achieve. 
but do it through a mix of filtration and ventilation. So we basically do that ASHRAE 145.2 testing to define our effectiveness for the gaseous contaminants and apply that in these mass balance equations that are used with the indoor air quality procedure. And I'm, I got to go to halftime in a second, but I got a quick follow up on your your uh, products there. Do they? Do you have any standalone units? Do they always have to be integrated into the, uh, say, the rooftop unit like we showed here? Yeah, we have both standalone units, and then we can also we also are working with partners, uh, groups like that, companies like that, to integrate it inside their systems. But yes, we offer standalone units. They're called HVAC load reduction or HLR modules. Um, and uh, they're modular in form. We have a form factor that goes on roofs. We have some that go in mechanical rooms. We have some small ones that go directly into space. And you can find all that on our website under the um, products tab. All right. Well, thank you for that. We're going to go to halftime. We'll be right back with our guests, Eric Malstrom and Christian Weeks. We're having a great discussion on the clean first approach. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the iicrc a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we've got two follow-ups to um, step three, which is uh, which was uh, optimized ventilation. And one is... Does this technology mean that air contaminant levels will, re- will remain at ASHRAE limits when ventilation rates are optimized? Christian, I think that's for you. Yeah, so the answer is, is absolutely yes. Uh, in fact, um, we can even deliver enhanced indoor air quality above the ASHRAE minimums by simply deploying more of these air cleaning modules in the space. Okay. And Cliff, you had a follow-up. I, I do. Uh, I'm interested in how long does it take you to, well, I, I guess the regeneration process. So the, how long does it take uh, to regenerate? Is it a continuous process or does the unit shut down, regenerate, and yeah. then start up again? So Yeah, great question, Cliff. So 
Um, for those who aren't as familiar with our, our systems, we have certain air cleaning systems that are designed to just capture the contaminants that ASHRAE has defined in 62.1. And then we have a, another product that does all those, but also removes CO2 from indoor air. CO2 is not on an ASHRAE list. It's not an ASHRAE defined contaminant, but it's one that many people are familiar with and may want to control. And so we use a what we call a regenerating unit when we're also trying to remove CO2. Uh, the regeneration is important when we're trying to remove CO2 because CO2 is much more plentiful. It's a much more higher concentration in our space. It's parts per million, whereas the other gases we worry about, like formaldehyde, are parts per billion. So with parts per million, our filters will saturate after a number of hours. And so when they saturate, we regenerate the filters, which means we heat them up and we essentially release the CO2 that we've captured and vent it outside the building. So certain of our products have this capability. Others are just designed to be compliant with the ASHRAE standard. But for those products, we regenerate typically once or twice a day, Cliff, and that regeneration cycle is anywhere from 30 minutes to a couple hours. Usually what we'll do is a short regeneration during the lunch hour. So we recharge the cartridges for the afternoon when people come right. back. And then overnight, we'll do a much deeper regeneration to fully replenish the filters for the next day. All right. And um, I'm going to get to another one of these text comments in a moment, but let's go to step four. John, pull up page 22 again. So now we've gotten through the first three steps. Our timing looks pretty good here. We're now on to step four, validate, monitor, and control IAQ. So here's field uh, figure seven, step four. We're going to validate, uh, we're going to monitor, and we're going to control the IAQ. So we use continuous monitoring with third-party validated sensors. I wonder if maybe someone uh, can tell me if you've had any third, which sensors you've used, and um, are you aware of them doing a good job or not? I mean, this is a question we're going to get into. We've got these low-cost sensors now, and we've got a big show on that next week, but I'm wondering uh, what your experience has been. Let's start with you, Eric. Sure. So, um, that there are a number of, of sensors that are on the market and that have come on the market over the past couple of years. I think that um, we, we as a company are kind of agnostic as to the sensor, but I think that we, we look at things like um, the, uh, those that conform to the UL 2905 kind of standard, you know, basically third party validation of the sensor itself, because I think anyone who's familiar with sensors knows that there's a range of quality out there. Um, you know, and, and not only are they doing different things, I'd say in IAQ, you know, many, many IAQ sensors are now doing the big five of uh, PM, you know, generally PM 2.5, CO2, VOCs, temperature, and relative humidity. Um, some are more narrow and some do more than that, but that's those five are kind of seem to be where most of the sensor market is. I'd say that there's a variety. I, I think there's an assumption in many cases that the reading from the sensor and the hard, the sensor hardware is good. And that's where a lot of the variation is where the, the, the quality is not always good. And if you put two identical or two sensors next to each other, they may be reading very different things. Um, so then, you know, if you have a poor 
physical sensor technology, then you have a garbage in, garbage out problem with the data because it's not reliable. So, you know, I think that we would just advise looking for kind of third party quality assurance type of labels and then other independent evaluations of the sensors is kind of what we use as ground truth. I'm not going to uh, call out any specific brands, but there's some great ones out there. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, that, that, that's kind of a bit on the sensors. And I, I think that the paper calls out, uh, out this very explicitly in, in uh, both uh, Christian and I can probably speak to this more, but you also have to be careful about how you think about that data because in some cases, you know, CO2 I'd say is the, the, the metric that a lot of people are using as a proxy for ventilation. And it makes sense in many respects, but also you're gonna have higher CO2 rates anytime you put more people into a space. Um, what CO2 can tell you about pathogens, about VOCs, about other categories of indoor uh, indoor air contaminants has real limitations. You need to be careful of not just using a metric like that as kind of the, the be all end all for what is good and what is not, or what is safe or what is not. But um, yeah, those are some, some observations on my side and uh, I'm happy to hand it over to Christian, in case he has anything. To yeah, add. Christian, anything you'd like to add? And then I'd also like, <clears throat> if you would, to, to comment on continuously monitoring IAQ using reset the reset air standard. I am not terribly familiar with that standard. Yeah, I was actually going to mention the reset because not only do they um, offer the world's first performance-driven data standard and certification program for air quality monitoring. Um, they have this data standard, which is helpful for continuous monitoring, but they also certify sensors. So Eric referenced the UL standard reset, um, which is a standard that's been developed in Asia, uh, specifically in, in China, which is in some ways uh, far ahead of the U.S. in terms of indoor air quality because of all the awareness they have around pollution and how it affects both outdoor and indoor air quality. Um, they've been working on this standard for, for many years now, and you can actually go to their, their website, which is, I think, reset. Um, Dot com perhaps uh, we actually reference in the white paper there's a whole description of what is reset but uh, they give you a list of sensors that they have independently validated or you know evaluated and and deemed to be um, uh, you know worthy uh, you know best of class um, but they go beyond just validating the hardware and the sensor technology they actually go for, to the, um, defining a protocols and standards for collecting data and using the data making sure the data is accurate uh, and that gets to Eric's point about you need good hardware, but you also need, you know, good valid data. Um, and you need to make sure you have protocols in place to control for drift and, and these other things that sensors naturally do. So, yeah, you can see their monitors are here. Um, they've got uh, both induct uh, and in space sensors. And then they have a whole standard, a data standard around, you know, how you uh, use this data from these sensors. John, click on that indoor air quality monitors right there. Let's see what they, if they've got any particulars here okay i'm looking at uh yeah there's quite a list here and i guess um you know i, I shouldn't always use the term low cost these may or may not be low cost sensors is that accurate to say christian some of these are lower cost than others um it, it's a range uh some of them are, are selling the hardware as part of a package with a subscription so they're also giving you a dashboard and, and providing you with data um, so I think there are different models to acquire the hardware and the, and the platforms you need to, to uh, get useful information out of these systems. 
Okay, now let's let's continue along this validate, monitor, and control um, segment here. And I think this is kind of where Safe Traces. Um, this is kind of your bread and butter in that you're you're trying to simulate someone being ill, distributing this uh, whatever. In this case, we're talking COVID. I'm curious, what size particle is the tag attached to? So it's it's a range um the the when we spray we're generating everything from larger droplet sized particles that are visible to the the naked eye to sub one micron types of particles and the dna will attach to all of those but at different levels um but the key for us is getting within the range of the respiratory emissions and so we are our sweet spot is kind of in that range. We have a, you know, roughly 80% aerosol fraction at, you know, the kind of size range that matters. Um, and, and that's what, it, why that's important is because those smaller aerosols not only are more mobile and travel further, but also a lot of the infectious disease science kind of calls them out is the bigger risk because of the fact that people can breathe them in more, more, more easily. And, uh, and then, you know, the risk of infection goes up. Eric, when I wrote my questions and my, you know, my notes for the show, I was having a hard time describing whether safe traces is a process or a product, or can you tell me a little more on how you describe it? And then if you would, I want to go back to another comment. Effectiveness of such technology depends on where you take the sample and how many samples are taken. Um, I think that's an important point. So if you could comment on that as well, I'd appreciate it. Sure. So on the process versus product, I would use a, a more encompassing term. Uh, we're, we're a platform, really. And the platform consists of three main elements. The first is the, the, the field testing and the actual technology, the tracer technology that goes uh, behind that. Um, you know, we, we have deep roots in the biosecurity uh, world going back to uh, our, our roots in Lawrence Livermore and the, our, 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 the R&D that underlies our commercial products was born out of the anthrax spore experience and wanting to respond to that and have a way to go into real world spaces and, and test risk and the, the resilience and effectiveness of biodefenses. But you know, step one is the kind of field testing, which is a delivered service to customers. You know, we train technicians ranging from engineering services to industrial hygienists to facility services people through an online certification program on how to use our method in the field. And then um, they are kitted up to be able to, to do that. Um, so that's step one is field testing and the technology associated with that. Uh, the second element is the data. We have a cloud-based software platform where all the data is um, provided back to the customer whose building is being tested. And that allows them to see at kind of a portfolio level all the different buildings, the area of the buildings that were tested, and it allows them to track building performance across time within a building and then benchmark different buildings against each other within a portfolio. Um, and that's all digital. 
So uh, unlike, I'd say, a lot of air quality testing, which is, you know, you test a space and then you get a report and then that report gets kind of filed somewhere, we want to bring that all online digitally. The, the third piece is really, uh, really important to call out, which is we, we offer uh, the, the, the only um, actual verification mark for a building uh, for ventilation and filtration uh, effectiveness for removal of aerosol contaminants with UL, UL uh, Underwriters Laboratory, the global safety science company. And we actually you know, take a building through a performance evaluation. We focus on high density areas. We go and we field test them annually. And, and then we have a performance standard of a 99% aerosol removal rate within uh, high density areas within the building that is uh, correlated to about a, a five equivalent air change rate in those spaces. And a building uh, needs to, all the density areas that were tested need to achieve that or higher. And so when the building passes, then we actually, you know, similar to things like the well health and safety rating or LEED or other building verification programs, we can put a UL Safe tra Traces sticker on the building. And we saw that as being a critical need in the market, given the concerns about airborne pathogens and the fact that that is not well covered by the existing uh, building verifications. And it's also not even addressed in ASHRAE 62.1. You know, pathogens are explicitly not included in the primary indoor air quality standard that, you know, building designers and engineers are using today. So, so, so that's kind of what we do. We do all of those things. And so, you know, a customer would be participating in kind of getting all of those services uh, provided as part of the packet support package we provide. All right, let's go to the roundup, John. The roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, let's. I've got a quick follow up from uh, our audience. Eric, what do you do when you find problems with IAQ? Yeah, great question. And I was just starting to respond to that in the chat. So, the, the, field, um, the field service providers that we work with, who I mentioned, are coming from industrial hygiene. Um, engineering services, whether they're commissioning agents or tab contractors or, or the like, they basically um, not only do the field testing, but they're also there to help design the test plan and then also to interpret the results on the backside that we get, which in some cases will be straightforward. It will tell you how air is flowing around the space and how, how efficient particle removal is. But then the critical question the customer cares about is, so what? You know, are we uh, performing to the level that we want to be? Is that adequate? Is it acceptable? And in some cases, they'll have deficient areas that require some remediation. And that's where the service provider will come in with recommendations. Um, and importantly, in some cases, you are uh, customers, and, and this goes for many modern office buildings and more modern buildings, they're over-ventilating their spaces. Um, and it gets back to the whole, you know, one of the key ideas of the clean first uh, 
uh, framework, which is that there, there's a diminishing uh, return to indoor air quality. You know, at some point, you know, like you, you certainly don't want to be undershooting a target, but you don't want to be overshooting it as well, because you could be doing something that has a marginal to negligible safety benefit, and but it is incurring a significant cost, energy, and carbon penalty. And so figuring out, it goes back to step one of setting your goals, having a clear goal, and then evaluating yourself against that goal is going to enable you to achieve a safe environment, but then also manage your financial resources and manage the energy consumption and the carbon emissions of the building in a way that is quantifiable and uh, that brings everything together. But, you know, to, to the, the basic question, you know, the service providers, the data will tell you a lot, but then often there's a layer of service provider who's helping advise the customer on what they do. And you've been working with industrial hygienists, uh, building managers, groups like that, to, and, and they would then pitch in and help with that particular component, I guess you'd call yes, it. Yep. All right, Christian, I, I want to go over uh, the final point on uh, John, pull up page 24 for a moment. Um, and the final point on this last section, validating, monitoring, and controlling IAQ, it's kind of been the holy grail for people. Um, there we go. Uh, scroll down a little bit. All right. I, I guess what I'm, what I want to find out is um, how are you integrating the sensor data with your building management system, which is kind of the ultimate goal. How is that? I don't even know. How is that going? Are, are we at the point where we have the ability to do a good job of integrating this data that we're generating and then getting our building management system to go ahead and make whatever changes are necessary to improve things? Yeah, I, I agree that this is the holy grail just to sort of sort of paint the full picture. You know, as we said at the beginning, setting goals, cleaning the air, getting the ventilation rate right, but then this validation step is really important. And that's where technologies like Eric's and others come into play. Um, but ultimately, you know, we need to make this stuff, set this stuff on autopilot as much as we can. And that's where the control integration becomes really important because people are busy, they're doing hot cold calls, now they're doing IAQ calls. To the extent we can automate that, right, all the better. Um, in talking to uh, monitoring companies over the last few years, I've been encouraged to learn that more and more of these companies are designing their platforms, their sensing platforms to integrate more easily with building management systems, oftentimes using the BACnet protocol as the, the standard. So we are finding that it's becoming easier and easier to deploy a sensor platform and you can maybe use their dashboard if you'd like, but now it's also becoming easier and easier to integrate that data directly in the building management system. So you have one pane of glass to see what's happening in your building and can then make the adjustments. Um, it's also possible to have some of these platforms also enable capabilities where they can send instructions to the building management system to make adjustments. And I think we'll see more and more of that. I would say the leading edge um, is, is approaches like those developed by 75F, which was another collaborator in this paper, where they've actually de de developed a um, IoT sort of native building management control system that directly integrates IA2 sensing capabilities into the sequences that it then uh, uses to optimize the building you know, performance or operation. 
Uh, and uh, th this approach that 75F has developed allows them to directly integrate this IQ data, but also incorporate sensor data and other things that then allow them to optimize how the building is performing, even at a very local level, you know, at a zonal level. You know, where are the people today? Who's in the office today? Uh, and control the, the ventilation rates, control which filters are running or not running. Um, also control things like lighting and other things that impact the overall energy uh, equation. So um, I think the good news is there's more and more uh, integration capabilities between these sensor platforms and building management systems. The best building management systems are building it in natively, um, but there's more work to do. There's more work to do. And, and I do agree that in terms of sort of where the opportunities are, this last piece of tying it all together through the control platform is, is the next frontier and where we need to continue to focus our efforts. And Eric, anything you'd like to add? John, let's go to figure eight, page 27 so we, as our wrap up. But uh, before we do that, Eric, anything you'd like to add on that section? I, I wholeheartedly agree. I'll just share an anecdote. So uh, we've been supporting a large uh, Fortune 25 company now for the past couple of years. And um, we've been in a lot of their facilities which span office and industrial. And you know we frequently are testing different parameters of uh, their, their outdoor air fractions and uh, filtration levels and fan settings and, and all, all, all these different uh, areas that impact indoor air quality. And we frequently uh, find that uh, the, 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 like, while it is not our explicit focus, we're kind of playing a commissioning role, just functionality and we're seeing kind of damper damper uh, set points, not what the BMS is indicating and all sorts of basic mechanical problems. And so I think that there are two takeaways from that for, for us and for the customer, which is one, can you trust the BMS and is it providing you accurate data, um, which is a big question. The second is that um, even that aside, you know, this customer has a huge facility portfolio and they, they understand that, um, they have problems, but at the end of the day, they need something automated to basically go out to their whole network and make changes. And so, uh, you know, like the idea of, uh, the idea of testing every facility all the time or whatever, like things need to be simplified. And right now we're at a point where there's so much human intervention involved in needing to manage the systems to get the system to perform correctly. So I see this as being, like really a, a critical area of development and getting to the, the real crux of what the customer cares about, which is they just want to push a button to be able to make changes and have the systems talk to each other better. And so that's where I think there's going to be a lot of important work needing to be done over the next generation. You know, I'd say buildings are still, all, despite all the talk you hear about smart buildings, I'd say that buildings are largely very dumb. Um, and uh, they need to get a lot smarter. I hear you there. All right, so we've gone over the Clean First Framework to Achieving Sustainable Air, and uh, we've got the uh, final figure up on here, and before we go, I want to make sure, Cliff, if you have any final questions or thoughts, you get a chance to jump in. Oh, I'm good. Thank you, Jim. And I also want to make sure we give both of you uh, the final say. Let's start with you, Christian. Any final thoughts before we go? Well, I think the final thought here is that indoor air, achieving indoor air quality goals and 
Ventilating buildings efficiently have often been in conflict with each other. At least that's how the industry has thought about it. And our hope is that this framework has shown people that we can layer different air cleaning technologies and validate their performance through technologies like Eric's. And, and these two goals can actually be harmonized and we can achieve better indoor environments and more sustainable buildings. So if that's of interest, um, hopefully we've, we've stoked some of that interest, check out the paper and we'd love to hear from you and collaborate with you around these opportunities. And Eric, we were talking before the show and, uh, you know, Safe Traces has gone from focus on food to now you're, you're exclusively in this IAQ. You can still do the food, but you've just been so busy with the IAQ, it's taken up all your bandwidth. I think that's an indicator that uh, there's something going on here that uh, is not going to go away quickly. Any final thoughts from you? Yeah. So thank, thanks so much for the opportunity. Um especially given that our, our original um, technology was born out of anthrax spores. Uh, someone that uh, I, I spoke with recently kind of made the analogy to the, after September 11th, there's a huge, a tremendous amount of concern about airborne pathogens and biosecurity. And ultimately that dissipated. And then we basically didn't make, we had a window of opportunity to do things we missed it. And then we went back to people, you know, like the, the community of experts caring, but the general public not caring. I think COVID and climate change, the combination has created a massive opportunity. And now unlike the anthrax spore experience, um, I think we see real uh, sustained political will in the form of funding, in the form of people wanting to do something about this. And I'm very excited at this point for companies like Inverit and us and others um, to, to be able to make a meaningful difference to, to the built environment, you know, to, to create healthier spaces, more energy efficient spaces. I think this is gonna be a real renaissance over the next generation and hopefully beyond, and we're excited to be a part of it. You know, it's been interesting, these, this two-part show. We don't oftentimes do them, but I, I thought, the collaboration between these different groups was unique. Uh, it was interesting. And um, I think there's some future here as well. I, I think uh, it's it's been very fascinating to talk to both of you. We appreciate you joining us. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to Eric Malstrom and Christian Weeks, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our audience and sponsors Hey, by the way, next week we've got Dr. Subu Subranamian. Uh, Subu Subranamian. He's going to be joining us from Dubai. We're going to get an international perspective on IAQ and also talk about that uh, hot topic of low-cost sensors. So please come back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.